All right, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you do, let me say a quick word about giving. Obviously, we can't receive a physical offering this morning, but you can, of course, give online or you could just mail a check to the church and take care of your regular giving that way. Well, this morning, I titled our message, The Best Day Ever. And I know a lot of times when people use that expression that this is the best day ever, um, it's, it's a little bit overblown. Uh, just the other day, my son Jace, he's five years old, um, he was sitting down with my wife Erica and she was showing him photos and videos of himself from back in the day. And she was showing him a video of him playing baseball in my in-law's backyard. And he was probably two years old or so, and I think he was probably using a plastic bat and just hitting a ball all by himself in the backyard. And he looks at Erica and he says, that was the best day ever. And I'm in the kitchen overhearing this and I'm thinking, really? Not Disneyland, not the day we took you to Legoland, not the family vacation to Hawaii. You standing in your grandparents' backyard with a plastic bat was the best day ever. Well, this title probably sounds a little bit overblown as well. We're all sitting in our living rooms right now on Easter Sunday. We've been quarantined basically to our homes for over three weeks now. I mean, how could this be the best day ever? Well, I chose this title because of its irony. Um, Today feels like anything but, but what today is about is exactly that. It's about the best day ever ever. Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Jesus conquered sin and the grave, and he offers eternal life to all who would receive him by faith. What could possibly be better than that? Now, without question, we are an increasingly secular nation, but most people have still heard about the resurrection of Jesus. I heard about a man who went on a trip to the Holy Land a number of years ago, and he went with his wife and his mother-in-law. And tragically, on the trip, his mother-in-law died in the Holy Land. So the man and his wife went and they spoke with an undertaker who explained to them that they could ship her body home to the United States, but it would cost around $10,000. Or they could just have a service there in Israel and it would only be about $150. We'll ship her home, the man said, immediately. The undertaker asked, are you sure? That's an awful lot of money to spend, and we can do a really nice burial here. And the guy said, look, 2,000 years ago, they buried a guy here, and three days later, he rose from the dead. I just can't take that chance. Yes, many people have heard of the resurrection, but not all understand its significance, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 23, then we'll have a word of prayer and we'll begin talking about this text together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as To one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you on this Easter morning thanking you for the wonderful gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified according to the scriptures and buried and raised from the dead according to the scriptures. God, as Christians, we are so thankful for the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that this morning on this Easter Sunday, you would once again fill our hearts with awe and wonder at your grace, at your love, at your mercy that is put on full display through the events that took place on this weekend some 2,000 years ago. So Lord, bless our time in your word. Minister to us, instruct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wants to remind the church that he's writing to, which is the church in the ancient city of Corinth, about the gospel message. Now, the word gospel literally means good news. And when the Bible uses the term gospel, it's referring specifically to the good news about Jesus Christ. And what is that good news that the Apostle Paul wants to remind them about? Well, in verses 3 and 4, he spends half of a verse talking about the death of Jesus or the crucifixion of Jesus, and then half a verse talking about the burial of Christ, and then he spends the next 54 verses unpacking the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ on the cross is good news to be sure, but only because of the resurrection of Jesus. As Paul puts it, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile and you and I are still in our sins. There's five things that we're going to learn about the resurrection together this morning. The first two help to substantiate the resurrection and the last three unpack the significance of the resurrection. So number one, the resurrection of Jesus was predicted was predicted. We see this in verses 3 and 4. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance 
with the scriptures. Notice that after the expression that Christ died for our sins, Paul writes, in accordance with the scriptures. And then again, after talking about the resurrection, he writes, in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's point here is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, rather, were predicted in the Old Testament. There were scriptures that talked about the fact that Jesus or the Messiah would be crucified, he would be put to death, and that eventually he would be raised from the dead. And Paul is pointing to that fact that this, these events that had transpired happened according to the scriptures. Let me give you just two verses on both of these topics, the death and resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament. First, with the death of Christ, consider Psalm 22, verse 16. This is a messianic psalm, and it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. A clear reference to the crucifixion. And then, of course, famously, you have Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant. It's a prophecy about the Messiah who would come. Here's verses 4 through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. A clear picture of the events that took place on Good Friday as Jesus was ultimately crucified for our sins. And then two verses about the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament. Consider Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. We read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter, of course, in Acts chapter 2, picks up on this prophecy and applies it directly to the resurrection of Jesus. Or going back to Isaiah 53, which we just read about the death of Christ, consider how Isaiah continues on in this prophecy now to make reference to the resurrection. This is starting in verse 9. He writes, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So notice in that passage, as it's talking about the Messiah suffering and dying, it says things like he will, after doing that, prolong his days. That after doing that, 
God would divide with him a portion with the many. He'll divide the spoil with the strong. How could any of that make sense if it's referring to a dead person? It's obviously referring to a resurrection that he must continue on in life after making sacrifice for our sins. So Paul wants to say, listen, these events about Jesus were, were uh, prophesied about, they were told about in the Old Testament. Now, scholars debate how many prophecies of the Old Testament relate to the Messiah that Jesus ultimately fulfills, but some claim upwards of 300 Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. From things like uh, the city that he would be born in, Micah 5.2 tells us that that would be the city of Bethlehem, to the fact that he would be of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe in Israel, that he would be born of a virgin. We learn about that in Isaiah chapter 7. Um, that when he was killed, that those who killed him would gamble for his clothing, that when he was killed, he wouldn't have any of his bones broken, etc., etc., etc. And one of the most famous ways that the significance of this has been illustrated was done by Peter Stoner, who was the former chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. Now, he and a team determined that for a single individual to fulfill just eight messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, the probability would be one in 10 to the 17th power, which is a huge number. To help us visualize that number, he famously explained it this way. He said, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. And he said, now mark one of those silver dollars and just throw it into the state randomly. And then he said, mix up all of the silver dollars across the whole state. Then blindfold a man and tell him he can walk as far as he wishes, but eventually he needs to bend down and pick up just one silver dollar and say that that is the right one. It's impossible. And again, that's just for somebody to fulfill eight messianic prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled so many more than that. Now, why does this matter? Well, it shows us that the suffering Messiah was not a deviation from God's plan. No, this was the fulfillment of God's plan. So Paul wants to make it clear to his readers and to us today that Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, all of that was God's appointed plan to bringing about our salvation. The second thing we see in our text is found in verses 5 through 7, and it's that the resurrection of Jesus, yes, it was predicted, but it was also witnessed. The resurrection was witnessed. In verse 5, Paul writes and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Then in verse 8, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, the New Testament records, as we're seeing here, numerous appearances of the risen Jesus. We had women at the tomb on Easter Sunday. Paul here references Peter, all the disciples, a group of over 500 brothers, probably men, women, maybe even children. So a huge group. And evidently, um, the Corinthians would have known some of these people. They could corroborate the story. Paul's like, listen, most of these people are still alive. Like, you could fact check this thing, although some of them have died. 
He goes on to talk about James and then, of course, ultimately even Paul himself. For Paul here and for all of the apostles, this was a significant point because as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.16, they did not follow cleverly devised myths when they made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That Jesus, the risen Jesus, made many resurrection appearances to numerous people, lends great credibility to the resurrection and to Christianity in general. Consider the origins of Mormonism. Um, In Mormonism, you have Joseph Smith, who alleges that he was visited by the angel Moroni, who gave him the revelation that would ultimately become the Book of Mormon. You've got a single witness to that. No one who could corroborate that. Just Joseph Smith saying that an angel visited him. Or consider the origins of Mormonism, or of, um, excuse me, Islam. In Islam, you've got the prophet Muhammad, who alleges that he was visited by the angel Gabriel, who gave him the revelation that would ultimately become the Quran. Again, you've got a single witness alleging that they had this revelation from the divine. But with the resurrection of Jesus, we're not talking about one or two people. We're talking about Jesus appearing to numerous people, many hundreds of people on multiple occasions, all bearing witness to this event. And Paul is adding these facts about the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians because he wants to make the point that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. Because if it didn't happen, then guess what? It doesn't matter. Now, the last witness we're told here was Paul himself. At the time that he met the risen Jesus, his name was actually Saul. He was Saul of a city called Tarsus. And Saul was a very religious man. He was a devout Jew, and he was a persecutor of Christians. He was a Christian killer. He would go and he would round up Christians. He would have them imprisoned or even executed. And Paul was traveling to the city of Damascus because he was going there to do exactly that, to round up Christians and have them persecuted. And on that trip, the risen Jesus confronted Paul, knocked him off of his horse. He was blinded for three days. And that encounter with the risen Jesus completely transformed his life. Which brings us to our third point about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus changes lives. Look at verse 9. Paul writes, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. For Paul, and every Christian sense, The resurrection of Jesus is not just a past event, it's a present reality. In John chapter 11, you have this famous story of the death of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus, and Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, were also very dear friends of Jesus. And they had sent to Jesus to say, hey, your friend Lazarus, our brother, he's very sick. Would you please come? Because they knew if Jesus came, he could touch Lazarus and he could heal him. But Jesus delayed and Lazarus dies. And by the time that Jesus gets to Bethany, the village that they lived in, Lazarus has already been dead. 
And the sisters come, and they come to Jesus, and they are, they are in the throes of grief. And they say, Lord, if you had just been here, our brother would still be alive. And in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus famously says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He says, I am the resurrection. Present tense. Not, not I was the resurrection. I am. This is who I am. I am resurrection life. And Jesus still is today. He is the resurrection and the life. Because he lives, he stands ready to change lives now, even as he did for the Apostle Paul. See, Paul says in verse 10 that it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. In other words, all that he had become by this point as he's writing 1 Corinthians, this Christian, this leader in the church, this very spiritual and godly man, he's saying, listen, all of that is due to the grace of God. God is the one who has worked in my life. God is the one who has transformed me into the person that I am. God's grace flows from God's presence. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is saying, look, I'm living my life, but it's actually Christ who's living inside of me. See, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence inside the heart of every believer. And it's God himself, God the Spirit, who is transforming us into the image of Christ. And Saul, or Paul himself was radically transformed by the presence of God. So you need to understand that Saul of Tarsus was an arrogant, self-righteous Christian killer. But the apostle Paul had been radically transformed. Notice instead of being arrogant, now Paul is humble. In verse 9 he says, for I am the least of the apostles. He goes on to say, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because of the things that I've done. I'm the least of all of the apostles. What's amazing about that is most Christians since Paul have thought that the apostle Paul was probably the greatest Christian of his generation. But he's now this humble man and he sees that anything good in his life has come about not because of his own greatness but because of God's grace. Notice too that he now relies on Christ's righteousness. He's not looking to his own work to somehow validate himself. He says, I worked harder than any of them. This is in verse 10. I worked harder than any of them, which sounds almost arrogant, right? Like, oh gosh, here goes the pride. Sounds like he's working or he's looking to his own works here. Look how hard I worked for God. But then he goes on to say this. He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So I worked really, really hard for the Lord Jesus. But then he's like, but hold on, actually, let, let's not talk about my work. Everything I was able to do for Jesus was actually the result of everything that Jesus had done for me. And notice, instead of being a Christian killer, now he's a leading Christian in the churches. Amazing. God had transformed his life. The resurrected Jesus changed everything for Saul of Tarsus. He was a notorious sinner, and now he became, by God's grace, a powerful saint. Now, last year, Kanye West made headlines once again, this time for 
um, starting Sunday services and releasing a new album called Jesus is King, and of course, confessing that Jesus Christ had actually changed his life. Of course, time will tell the genuineness of Kanye's faith, but I'll be honest with you, it wouldn't surprise me one bit that God would take a notorious sinner like that and transform him into a godly saint. But you need to understand, it's not just the Apostle Paul's or the Kanye West's of the world that have claimed to be changed by the power of Christ. Millions and millions of Christians over 20 centuries have claimed the exact same thing, that the risen Jesus has come and entered into their life and actually transformed them into a different person. And I stand here this morning to tell you that Jesus has changed my life. When I was 20 20 years old, I had a plan for my life. I had a vision for my life. I had a direction for my life. I was well on my way to becoming a successful model and actor. Is that funny to you? That should not be funny to you. Okay, it's all a lie. I was pursuing a degree in political science. And I had a desire, which was to get into politics and to get into government. But the reasons for that is because probably of the money, of the power, of the prestige. It was all of those earthly entrapments that were so enticing to me as a young man. And yet that summer in college, when I was 20 years old, Jesus came into my life and radically transformed me and transformed all of my desires and the entire direction and course of my life and helped me to see that those things that I once valued so much actually in the grand scheme of things don't matter that much at all. And my life has never been the same. And guess what? Because Jesus is risen, he can change your life too. The resurrection of Jesus changes lives. Fourth, we see that the resurrection of Jesus vindicates our faith Starting in verse 12, Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There were many people at the time of the New Testament who denied the idea of a resurrection, just like there are today. Of course, the pagans denied that by and large. Uh, But even many Jews denied the resurrection. Remember Jesus' interactions with the Sadducees. But here's Paul's logic here. He says, listen, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead. And if Jesus is still dead, then our preaching is pointless. And so is your faith. You are still in your sins. Because obviously Jesus' death was no more significant than anyone else's. So he goes on and he says, so all Christians who have died have actually perished. Therefore, if there is no resurrection, he says, we as Christians of all people ought to be pitied. In other words, Paul's saying, look, if, this, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we've lived a massive lie. We've sacrificed so much and for what? 
See, these early Christians like Paul, they sacrificed everything to follow Jesus of Nazareth. They walked away from their occupations. They turned their back on the religion of their family and of their nation. And they were persecuted. They were poor. They were traveling missionaries who were being beaten up and thrown into prisons. And ultimately, every single one of them was executed or martyred for their faith. And Paul's saying, look, if Jesus isn't alive, if there's no resurrection after this is all said and done, then we deserve to be pitied by the world. I'm not sure if you've seen the, the movie The Village. Um, if you haven't, I'm sorry, I'm about to spoil it for you, but it's like 15 years old, so you should have seen it already if you were going to. But the setting of this movie is um, like a 19th century village set in the countryside. And throughout the movie, um, this village is very, very cut off from everything else because there are wild beasts that live in the trees that are surrounding the village. And the townspeople, the elders in the town, explain to everybody that they've had an agreement with the monsters that live in the forest, and so they don't go into the forest, and the monsters don't come in to the village. Now, at the end of the movie, here comes the big spoiler, sorry not sorry, at the end of the movie, um, one of the villagers, a young man, he leaves the village to try to go to another remote village to get medical help for somebody who needs it. And when he does, uh, kind of the climax of the movie is he comes out onto a major highway and you see cars driving by. And it all of a sudden becomes clear that this entire movie that you've been watching is set in the present time. And as a viewer of the movie, you feel so sorry for all of these people who have been living this life stuck in this little village when there is so much more going on in the world, so many things that they've been cut off from, and they've sacrificed so much, and they've lived without so much, and all for what? It was a massive lie, a deceptive plot. Similarly, Paul is saying, look, if Jesus is not risen, everything we've been doing as Christians, our entire life's experience was a total waste. It was for nothing. But he says, Jesus is alive. Therefore, that's not true. And Jesus' resurrection from the grave vindicates our faith. Fifth and finally, and we'll close, the resurrection of Jesus gives us victory over death, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The word firstfruits is a term that refers to the first crop of a harvest. It's that first apple that you pick off the tree. It's that first crop that you pull out of the ground. That's the first fruits. So Paul is saying here that Jesus, through his resurrection, is like the first fruit, the first crop of a massive harvest of other people who will also experience resurrection from the dead. Yes, according to the Bible, because we are all children of Adam, all of us will physically die. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we shall be made alive. When will this happen? Paul says in verse 23, it's going to happen at his coming. 
According to the Bible, when a Christian dies, their spirit or their soul goes directly into the presence of God. Here's 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So when a Christian dies, again, their soul or their spirit goes directly into the presence of God and yet their body goes into the earth. But at Christ's return, believers are rejoined to their bodies, albeit they are glorified bodies, and thus the effects of sin on our bodies, namely deterioration and death, are going to be eternally reversed. Look at verse 50 here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about it. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Amazing. Because of COVID-19, Death and human vulnerability have been in the social consciousness more than at any point in the recent past. The world right now is gripped by anxiety and fear and uncertainty. But listen, you don't have to be. Easter is the great rebuke of all that is scary in the world that you and I live in. I mean, think about it. What is the worst thing that could happen to you? You die, right? That's the worst thing. Death is our greatest enemy. And Easter looks back to that moment in history when Jesus disarmed all of the powers of darkness and hell, making an eternal mockery out of them. And from that point on, Jesus now stands with death beneath his foot. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55. We'll pick up there. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, And the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For those of us who are in Christ by faith, who are being changed by his grace, we have a living hope this morning, and his name is Jesus. And that is the only hope that we need. And for those of you who are watching this morning and you're not a Christian, I would ask you, why not? What is it that's holding you back from coming into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? God, in his love, sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, to deal with sin and death so that people like you and me, who are broken, who are flawed, who have sinned and rebelled against God, could have our sins forgiven, and we could be brought into fellowship with a holy, righteous, and eternally loving God. How about you come to him today? If you do, I can promise you that today will be, for you, the best day ever. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the good news of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are so thankful That because of Christ, we can have our lives radically changed. We can have our hearts radically transformed so that we begin to live life the way that it was meant to be lived. 
in fellowship with a holy God rather than separation and alienation. And we can live life loving you and loving neighbor the way that we were designed to live. Lord, we're so thankful that because of the resurrection, our faith has been vindicated and it will ultimately be vindicated. And Lord, we are so thankful that because of the resurrection of Jesus, that death does not have the final word. We're so thankful that when we come to die, and all of us will, that for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, rather than experiencing eternal judgment separated from you in a place called hell, we'll experience eternal life with you in your presence in a place called heaven. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy toward us. And we rejoice this morning in the amazing work of our Lord and Savior. So thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you for your resurrection. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. We are going to conclude our service today with a final song about the resurrection. So let's worship.